We're in chapter 20, but we're going to pause there and we're going to talk about the rapture. As you have seen so far, and as we've read through this book, the rapture is never mentioned once, nor does it even show up in the story in any kind of a way. And tonight I'm going to tell you why I don't personally believe in the rapture. Now, I know you might start hating me now, but um, the reality is I still consider everybody a brother in Christ and a sister in Christ. Um, and this isn't a necessary theology to believe in in order to be saved. The word rapture does not appear anywhere in the Bible. And I don't believe, and most people do not believe, that the doctrine of what's called the secret rapture is not taught anywhere. This is what they call it, the secret rapture. Um, it's the idea that God is going to secretly come and rapture everybody off, which doesn't make sense to me because once everybody gets sucked off the planet, well, not everybody, the Christians, it's not so secret anymore. But this isn't found in any Bible translation. And it's also important to understand that Christians is not mentioned in Christians' writings or documents any time in Christian history until 1830. The idea of the rapture does not appear anywhere among Christians and their speeches and their writings and their books and their belief systems and the archaeological historical thing any time until 1830. And the vast majority of Christians and denominations today do not believe in the rapture. The people who believe in the rapture are a minority. It feels like they're a majority because of the left behind books and that kind of stuff, but they are a minority. So where did the idea of the rapture came, come from? The origin of the doctrine of the rapture begins with a Scottish minister, Edward Irving. He lived between 1792 and 1834. He was Scottish and he was a minister. He was a pastor of a church, a minister of a church, and it was a mixture between a high church Catholic service and a very charismatic denomination. You don't usually see those two go together. But by high church, we mean like people dressed up like bishops and in robes, very liturgy and structured, um, taking communion, believing that communion is somehow um, magical in some kind of way. Not completely, but um, not like the Catholics where it's truly transforming, but it has some kind of idea. And everything is structured and liturgy. But at the same time, it was very charismatic, speaking in tongues, laying on hands, um, flopping on the floor, acting like animals, that kind of stuff, which those two worlds only go together. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in speaking in tongues. I believe in laying on the hands. But I do not believe the loss of physical control. Um, I believe that God is a God of order and structure and self-control. And I think that's usually going too far. Eventually, he was investigated by the Scottish Church, and they basically kicked him out of the Scottish Church as a minister. I'm not saying that makes him a bad person, because... Good people are kicked out of things, too. But that's just the, the, the facts. He ended up forming his Catholic Apostolic Church. Um, so he formed his own denomination, and he began to teach. And his movement began to grow more and more and more and more. It's about this time, during one of his pastoral services, a young Scottish girl by the name of Margaret MacDonald fell into a trance. She fell down on the ground, she began to shake and rattle, and she fell into a trance, and this lasted for several hours. At the end of this, she had a vision from God that all the believers were going to be taken up off the planet one day when, before Christ came back. 
and that this would be led, um, everybody would be taken off the planet, and then a few years later, Christ would come back in his second coming. This vision probably would have just stayed with her in the small little church if it hadn't been for the fact that his, his um, messages were published and sent out. And a man by the name of John Darby, John Darby lived between 1800 and 1882. He was an English minister, and he was the pioneer and the founder of the Plymouth Brethren movement. Um, Plymouth Brethren is like everybody wears black, they're dressed, they're very strict. It's the idea of like um, very, very strict, very regimented, very legalistic doctrines. He heard this message of this little girl and actually came out to Irving's church and interviewed them, and he began to then publish it, this idea of the rapture. This is when it started becoming known as the secret rapture. So Darby developed a spiritual arguments to support the doctrine of the rapture. This girl had a little a vision, and that's it. And Darby was the one who took it and then started developing spiritual things. He started forming what's called... Um, um, dispensationalism, the idea of all the ideas that go around it and shape it and begin to build a framework that would allow for the rapture to fit into the Bible. Now you have to understand at this point, they have no scriptural evidence. Not once is Darby giving scriptural evidence in any kind of a way and that kind of stuff. He's just forming this doctrine. Darby traveled the United States of America and he met Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody is 1883 or 1837 to 1899, and he was the founder of the Moody Bible Institute, the Moody Bible Press in Chicago. Um, Moody adopted the rapture of the doctrine and became a worldwide disseminator of the rapture doctrine and of the dispensationalism, the idea of a future seven-year tribulation. He was the one Moody began to publish, and he was the one who began to teach the rapture, never been taught anywhere in any place. No one had talked about it, nobody had given sermons on it, nobody had taught it in any kind of a school or seminary ever until D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody began to teach it, he began to write books, he had his own printing press, so he began to distribute the idea. This idea began to take off among a lot of people. Later, Cyrus I. Schofield, the Schofield Bible, came along. He lived between 1843 and 1921, and he published the Schofield Reference Bible in 1903. And he was the first one ever to put headings in the Bible. So like when you're starting Matthew 24, there's a heading, and then you get to Matthew 25, there's another heading. The Bible never had any headings ever up until him. And so he started putting headings in. The problem is when he came to Matthew 24, he said, Jesus teaches about the rapture in Matthew 24. That's not actually what Jesus is talking about. And if you do believe that, that's kind of, I, I respect that, but there's only one teeny verse in the entire chapter. The whole chapter is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and then Christ coming back a second time to judge everyone before the throne. There's one reference verse, which we'll talk about later, that hints at a rapture. And he titled the whole chapter that way. And as people begin to read, they thought, well, wow, the rapture's in the Bible. Look, it says there right there in my Bible. Jesus talks about, predicts the rapture. And people didn't really distinguish between the headings versus the Greek and Hebrew translations that were there. And so this began to spread. After this, a man by the name of Lewis Sperry Schaefer, he lived between 1871 and 1952, and he became the founder of the Dallas Theological Institute. 
He believed in the rapture. He believed in D.L. Moody. He was very, very good friends with them. D.L. Moody and Dallas Theological Institute were like sister organizations with each other. It was later renamed Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. And this institute began to strengthen the theological foundation of the rapture and dispensational doctrine. Schaefer literally wrote that we need scripture to support the rapture. And he began to go through and begin to buttress it up with scriptural evidence. This is actually the seminary that I come from. So I'm very, very, very familiar with dispensationalism. I spent four years there. I was taught it. Um, I, I am very rooted in the seven-year seven future. Um, I, I grew up believing in dispensationalism and the rapture and all that kind of stuff. Um, I was taught it for four years. I know this view extremely well. He began to teach it. Dallas Theological Seminary became incredibly influential. Everybody's heard of that name. And then later, a man by the name of Tim LaHaye, who lived between 1926 and 2016, he made the Rapture Doctrine very popular with his book series, Left Behind. This is between 1994, um, 1995 to 2007. And he co-authored this with Jerry B. Jenkins. Now, Tim LaHaye was writing his own commentaries up to that point, his own books, but then decided to make an official story and teamed up with Terry, Jerry B. Jenkins, and they began to do this. And this is why the Rapture is incredibly popular with us today. It was not until the 1950s, really, that the rapture started being really popular and started spreading through America, mostly because of Dallas Theological Seminary and the Tim LaHaye Left Behind series. <coughs> now, what needs to be understood is that for the first 1,800 years of church history, no one believed in the rapture. No one wrote about it. No one talked about it. Nobody gave any messages about it. It was never a part of any doctrinal statements of any denomination or anywhere in the church. In fact, this phenomenon is unique to just a few Protestant denominations. Um, if you go, there are many um, Protestant denominations that do not believe in the rapture. The Catholics do not believe in the rapture. The Greek Orthodox Christians do not believe in the rapture. And outside of the Western churches, America and Europe specifically, you won't find anybody in China and Venezuela and South America who believe the rapture doctrine unless their church was strongly founded and formed by some Western denomination who was very adamant about the rapture and taught it. Those who believe in the rapture will say, no, 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 no. There was a man by the name of Ephraim who lived between 303 and 373 AD and he, like, that's like three, like, that's 300 years after Jesus, well, 100, 200 years after Jesus. And he was teaching the rapture, and he had writings talking about. He talks about believers being gathered together in the air, and that's it. That's really all he kind of mentions, is believers being gathered together in the air. The problem with this, though, is it is universally accepted by all scholars that Ephraim did not write these writings. He is literally called Pseudo-Ephraim. Pseudo meaning false. He's writing under the name of Ephraim. Ephraim was a very pro um, prolific writer. He was an early church father. And this guy came along and began to write as if he was him. And the textual evidence for this is overwhelming. And if you really want to go really, really, really deep into why this guy is not legitly 
Ephraim. I've got a really long document going through all of his vocabulary and grammar and showing how it doesn't match up with the original guy and all that kind of stuff and other things as well. This guy didn't write it. And not only that, this, the idea of him being caught up in the teaching, the idea of caught up is based on a mistranslation of the Greek into Latin. Um, when they, the, whoever translated it from the Greek into Latin, then into the English, they just didn't choose the right words. And most scholars would say that's not even what the Greek word means. This is basically, there are no ancient writings that you can go back to of anybody who actually believes in the rapture pre-1830. That doesn't mean that there isn't somebody maybe somewhere out there that we just haven't found their writings. I have to admit that, right? We haven't found every single writing that has ever been written ever. Many of them are probably will never be found because they disintegrated. Um, but in some of them we are yet to find. But if the rapture was such a predominant teaching and belief among people, we wouldn't have to wait thousands and thousands of years for some document to maybe pop up. This is the origin of the rapture. Scriptures used for the support of the rapture. If anybody's ever dug into this, you will find that, one, it never appears in Revelation. Okay, we've, we've gone through Revelation. We're in chapter 20, and not once have we seen like the entire church being taken up. There's never being caught up in the sky, being taken away from the earth, um, believers going out, other than dying and going to heaven kind of a language. That's it. We haven't seen it all in Revelation. And you would expect that if we were going to have the rapture, it would be in Revelation. Of all books that actually narrates the second coming of Jesus Christ and the future judgments, this would be the book that we would expect to see the rapture found. And we don't. We don't find any reference to the rapture. There are three proof texts that are used for the rapture. Okay, there is Matthew 24, 40. Matthew 24, 40. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54. These are the only three proof texts that really have any hint of a rapture language. And the first two are the ones that are predominantly used by people who believe in the rapture. In Matthew 24, 40, the entire context of this passage is Jesus talking about the fact that the Romans are going to one day destroy the temple, they're not going to leave any stone stain on top of each other. When that day comes, like, God forbid that you're pregnant or have any kids or something like that kind of stuff, because it's going to be a horrific day. Flee for the hills, hide, all that kind of stuff, because it's not going to be good for anybody who's found in Jerusalem. And that was fulfilled in 70 AD. That's exactly what happened in 70 AD. And then Jesus, without really any clear markers, just starts moving into the second coming of Christ where he talks about one day he will come back and he will judge the world and uh, the righteous will be um, brought into the kingdom of God and the wicked will be judged by God. And towards the end of this passage, as he's talking, he says this, Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. And there will be two women grinding grain with millstone and one will be taken and one will be left. And this is the idea of the rapture. And have you ever heard, remember the song, You've been left behind, okay? Which is a really, I always thought that song was really creepy and like nightmarish for me as a kid growing up. Like, that's actually scary to be left behind. Well-intentioned song, but just felt creepy to me. 
So they say, well, like, you're okay, you've got two people walking along the road, and one's taken away, and the other one's left behind. The other one's taken away, and the other one's left behind. And so this is the, pe- the Christians being raptured off the earth. But the problem with this is the context doesn't really lend to it. Okay, if you go back in the context, right before this, if you start in verse 36, chapter 24, verse 36. But as for the day and hour, no one knows it. Not even the angels in heaven except the Father alone. For just like the days of Noah were so the coming the Son of Man will be. So just like it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man comes back. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in the marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and took them away. It will be the same at the coming of the Son of Man. And then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. And there will be two women grinding grain in the millstone and one will be left. The context that Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. That is the context for interpreting one will be taken away and the other one will be left behind. And the context is that it's the wicked people who are taken away in the flood and destroyed, and it's the believers, Noah, who are left behind on the earth. They were all eating and drinking and living their life as if nothing was going to happen when God had clearly told them that in 120 years something big was going to happen. And so when that day came, the unbelievers, the wicked, were taken away and the righteous were left behind. And so then Christ goes on and says two people will be working in the field and one will be taken and the other one will be left behind. So in this context, it's good to be left behind. It's good to be left. And so you need to understand this, that nowhere even beyond that, taken is very subjective. It doesn't say that you're taken up into the air. It doesn't say you're taken up into heaven. It just says taken away. And and that could be like you were kidnapped by a bunch of kidnappers. That could be you were taken away as in like you died. Um, We say that to people sometimes they were taken away. They went to be with God. Like taken away can mean anything. So to immediately assume that it's being sucked up into the air into heaven, that's an assumption that nothing in the context is actually giving you. And in fact, the context is telling you that the people who are taken away are wicked and they're being taken away in death and in judgment, not sucked off the planet. In fact, even the famous Matthew Henry commentary, he taught that this was the believers that were being left behind. Um, so this, this is a belief that has gone back for a long time. And so that's the context. Furthermore, when Jesus is teaching about the parable of the weeds, Matthew 13, 36 through 43, Matthew chapter 13, 36 through 43, he goes on, he tells about the parable of the weeds before this. So this is happening several chapters before chapter 24. And in that parable, the parable of the weeds, it's the weeds who are the unbelievers that are gathered up and taken away and thrown into the fire. And it's the wheat that are left behind in the field to thrive in the second coming of Christ. So Christ says, so when the Son of Man comes and returns, he will take the wicked or the weeds. He's interpreting it for the disciple. He says the weeds are the wicked people, and he will gather them up and take them away or take them out, and he will throw them into the fire so that the wheat will be left behind who are the believers. And he, tra- he interprets it that. So then when we get to chapter 24, we need to understand that language in the same way that Jesus portrayed it in chapter 13 of Matthew. 
of that being gathered up and taken away. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, we're going to get to the resurrection of the believers and the unbelievers. And the unbelievers are going to be taken up and thrown into the lake of fire. And the believers are going to be left on the planet. And then in chapter 21, the kingdom of God comes down to earth. It fits every single time. It's always about the kingdom of God coming down to earth, not the people being taken up into heaven, so to speak. So that's the context of Matthew 24. So once you understand the context of Jesus' language in the greater book, Matthew 13, and then you realize the context of chapter 24 with the days of Noah, the left behind or the righteous, it sheds light on how you would interpret that. The second major passage that is used as a proof for the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13, it says, Now we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, which means dead, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. For we tell you this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will surely go, will surely not go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. For, and here's the passage, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout and a command, with the voice of the archangels and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ, will rise first, resurrected. Then we who are alive, will are, who are left, will suddenly be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here Paul specifically says you're going to be caught up into the air, the, the, the dead who are resurrected first, and then the believers who are alive are going to be caught up. So obviously this refers to the rapture. The problem is the context. Once again, the context. The context is that the believers to whom Paul is writing are concerned about those who have already died due to persecution and feared that they were going to miss out on the return of Jesus Christ. So the greater context is they're like saying, what about the dead? Like, right, Paul's talking about the son coming of Jesus Christ, and they're like, what about the dead? They died for their faith. They were persecuted. It was not their fault. Are they going to be left behind and they're not going to experience the second coming of Christ? They're not going to be in the kingdom of God. So this is what Paul answers. You also need to understand that all throughout the Bible, and this is uncontested, all throughout the entire First Testament and all the Jews, they believed that the kingdom of God was coming to earth. They did not have any concept of them going up. That is not a First Testament belief. It is not taught anywhere in the First Testament over and over and over again, we are told the kingdom of God coming to earth, kingdom of God coming to earth, kingdom of God, so that by the time we get to the time of Jesus, all the Jews have this framework, right? How many times when the disciples are like, is this the kingdom of God coming down to the earth? And Jesus is like, not yet. Acts chapter 1, is this the, now, wait, right? You've resurrected. Is the kingdom of God coming down to earth, right? He's like, I will tell you how, what it will look like, but not when it's going to come, right? Over and over again, they ask, is this coming down? In fact, when Jesus told them to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so they have no concept at all about going up. Because remember too, until Christ, nobody went to heaven. All the visions of heaven 
were of angelic beings and sons of gods and seraphim and cherubim and all this kind of stuff. And there were no humans in heaven. This is why it was revolutionary when Jesus died on the cross and said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That was a revolutionary thing. Now, don't get me wrong. All the First Testament believers were eventually ushered into heaven after Christ made atonement for their sins. So I'm not saying everybody in the First Testament died and went to hell. Um, but they just, the gates of heaven were not open yet. So nobody had any concept about going up. That's the framework and the context. The context is what about the people who are dead? And the, the cultural context is the kingdom of God comes down. The kingdom of God comes down. And Paul says this. That's the context you mean put it in. The other thing you understand is the word meaning. The word meaning that is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 is the Greek word apentesnen. This is also used in Matthew 25, verse 6, and Acts 28, verse 15. Matthew 25, verse 6, and Acts 28, verse 15. By the way, this document that I'm reading from is on my website now, as of today. This is used in both of those passages in both places. It is used when Jesus is using it and when Paul is using it, it is being used of a dignitary coming into the town and everybody's running out to greet him and usher him back into the town. Meaning, this is a very common custom in the ancient world. And so in Matthew um, 25 is talking about the coming of a dignitary. Acts is literally Paul coming to Rome. He's walking to Rome. And for those who are in the Acts passage, this remember we talked about this, like all the people Rome, like left Rome, and they traveled multiple cities south of Rome to meet Paul when they heard that he was coming. And then they joined him on the road, and they walked with him back into Rome, ushering him in. And so this is a very, very, very common custom. You see this in Psalm 24. You see this in passages in Isaiah where the watchman is looking out for enemies and, for, and friends, friend, friend and foe. And if he sees the general or the king who has been off into war, he will see them and the general will blow or the king will blow his trumpet and announce his coming. And that, that trumpet signal says that I'm your king and I am returning. And he will blow that, and the, 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 the city will open up, and everybody will go out to greet the king. And by everybody, I mean like the dignitaries and all the other stuff, not like the poor and all that kind of stuff. Although some of them might, but I don't mean like literally everybody. And they will run out with great fanfare, and then they will usher him in as the royalty that he is back into the city and he will sit on the throne and they will have a celebration and the roman empire i we talked about this in chapter 19 the general would wear a white clothing on a white horse and he would ride in with his soldiers and the captives from war and everybody would go out to greet them this is how that word meeting is being used clearly in those two passages and it's how it's being used here and so everybody in the ancient world had that understanding of meaning the idea is that Paul is saying the trumpet will be blown. And everybody would have known exactly what that meant. The dignitary is returning. And we will be caught up into the clouds because remember Christ said in Matthew, I, the Son of Man, will come back on the clouds to judge you. He, we will meet him in the clouds and we will usher him back to the earth where he will take the throne in Jerusalem 
and sit there as a king, and he will judge them. And this is the context. Every single time that it talks about a resurrection of the dead, that's the second coming. So Paul makes it very clear, the dead are going to be raised from the grave. And then the believers who are alive are going to be caught up with the dead. They will meet Christ and they will usher him back in. The ushering in is implied. This is clear because when we get to chapter 20, we're only told about one resurrection of the believers. There's a resurrection of the believers, and then we're told the second resurrection is the unbelievers. And we're not told about multiple resurrections. So when Paul's talking about the resurrection here in chapter 4, then it is clear that we're talking about the second coming and not some later thing. This clearly points to that. The next passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this one's very loose. And even people who believe in the rapture believe that this is very vague. But in chapter 15, verse 50 through 54, Paul's talking about the coming of Christ. And he says this line, We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a flash and the twinkling of an eye as the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. Those who believe in the rapture say Paul is referring to the rapture. However, there is nothing that even hints at the rapture here. It just says that we're going to be transformed. There's nothing about being taken up, nothing being caught away, nothing like that at all. And so this, the, if you look at the context, it's so clear there's nothing about rapture being taken away or any of the kind of stuff like that at all. And so these are the only three passages that they produce to prove the rapture is. Now, well, once again, you can disagree with me on the interpretation of this. I, I'm not going to divide fellowship. I'm not going to cease to be a brother in Christ with you. I'm not going to look at you any differently. You can disagree with me, but I'm giving this interpretation because we have heard the other view of the rapture for a long time, and it's just good to see that not everybody sees these passages in the exact same way, and that there are legitimate alternative interpretations to what's going on in these passages than just being taken off the planet um, suddenly and spiritually and the, the, um, without, without any prior notice. That's also what we see in Revelation 20. We see the trumpet blown, and the minute the trumpet is blown, the dead are resurrected, and they're brought up before the judgment of Christ, and the, the Christ is coming back and taking the throne of God and all, the throne of the David on earth and that kind of stuff. And so all these match up with a second coming of Jesus Christ than it actually does to some pre-event of a secret rapture. In conclusion... If the rapture was such a significant event, then one would expect to see more than just three vague passages about it. And most certainly one would expect to see it as a major event in the book of Revelation, which is specifically about the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible also makes it clear that the return of Christ will come when no one expects it. Matthew chapter 24 verse 27, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 52, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 2, 2 Peter verse 3 chapter verse sorry chapter 3 verse 10 just to name a few make it very clear that he will come back like a thief in the night when you least expect it. If that's the second coming of Christ is unexpected and if a rapture existed that means that the rapture would happen. That would be the unexpected thing. And then we would know exactly seven years later, or three and a half, depending on whether you're a pre or mid rapture, that Christ would be coming back. 
and that wouldn't fit his context of nobody knows when we're going to come back. And this is a difficult thing for them to reconcile. How is it that Christ is coming back when we don't know it, yet he raptures people seven years before his coming? Can't we all do the math after that? And so that makes it very clear. All throughout the Bible, the emphasis has been about the kingdom of Yahweh coming to earth, not about believers being taken up to heaven. Yes, those believers who die and go to heaven, there are believers who die to go to heaven, but this is a brief comment in the Bible. Most of the time, the Bible does not talk about dying and going to heaven. Yes, you will, but what it mostly talks about is the kingdom of God coming down to earth. In fact, Paul makes it very clear that your salvation is not complete until you are resurrected and the kingdom of God is brought down to the earth. And even Jesus said, do not pray. He didn't say, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May we go to heaven when we die. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes when I say the emphasis of this, people immediately assume I'm saying the other thing doesn't happen. Yes, you will go to heaven when you die, but that's not the ultimate goal. That's not the ultimate destination. And that's what we're going to see in the conclusion of Revelation. So this is what's talked about over and over and over again, not being taken up off the earth. Likewise, every single time that you see judgment in the Bible, all throughout the First Testament, it's the wicked and the unbelievers that are taken away. I give you the example of Noah, but there are other examples as well. The people of the flood were destroyed in the judgment, while Noah and his family were preserved on the earth. Psalm Gomorrah, they were destroyed and taken away in judgment, while Lot and his family were preserved on the earth. The Egyptians were destroyed in their judgments, while Lot and his family were preserved on the earth. The Egyptians were destroyed, sorry, I read that wrong. The Egyptians were destroyed in the judgment, while the Israelites were preserved on the earth. The rebellious Israelites of the wilderness were killed over and over and over again. Not that the same person was killed over and over again, but they kept dying in those 40 years over and over again. Yet it was the righteous who were left behind and allowed to enter the promised land, so to speak. They were the ones preserved. Jericho was destroyed in judgment, while Rahab and her family of faith were left behind and allowed to preserved on the earth. The wicked people of Israel and Judah during the time of the kings, they were the ones who were literally taken away. It was the ten tribes of the north that were taken away and killed, and it was the tribe of Judah later under the Babylonians, first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, that they were taken away. And it was the righteous who were left behind in the city of Jerusalem and all the other cities to maintain the city. And they were the poorest of the poor because the wealthy and the powerful were not following God. I'm not saying that wealthy and powerful don't. I'm just saying those particular cases, they were not. And so the poor, the poor. And so when Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel returned back to the promised land in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they returned back to the Jerusalemites that were left there. And they celebrated and were waiting for the day for them to all to come the ones that were taken away, because the people who were taken away were the unrighteous. And some of them put their faith in God during the exile, but only about 5% of them actually returned back to Jerusalem. Even though Jeremiah chapter 24 said, if you do not return to Jerusalem when God allows you to do that, you are directly sinning against God. There's no blessings outside the promised land. So it's the people who remain on the earth and not taken away. This is the pattern that we see over and over and over again. And we have seen by now in Revelation, God loves patterns. God establishes patterns and he maintains his patterns throughout the Bible. So this 
is why I don't believe in the rapture, because of the origin of where it came from, how it was developed, the fact that scholarly scriptural evidence was developed later, and, and the fact that there's only three passages that are even used. Um, there's a few other passages that are kind of used, but they're even vaguer than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But for me, as a person who strongly believes that God is writing in the cultural context of the Jews, I believe that the cultural context is a huge argument to understand it as going out and meeting Christ and bringing him back in again. And that makes sense. That fits with what we're going to see in chapter 20 of Revelation as we continue on. Like I said, like, this is my view. Okay, I I believe strongly in this view. I've done the research, but I'm not going to say, like, you're wrong and you're not a believer and you're not going to heaven, that kind of stuff, if you disagree with me in any kind of way. But that's my view, and that's the way I understand it. And to this day, I'm telling you, the vast majority of Christians do not believe in the rapture. This is in many Christians around the world don't even know the word. They don't even know what you're talking about. So the question is, what about the mid and the post-tribulation rapture? For those who don't know what that means, the view is that in the future, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. We've already talked about that lots of times um, throughout the weeks. Um, and some people believe, the vast majority of the people believe in the rapture, believe it's going to happen the first seven, the very beginning. And then the seven-year tribulation begins. There are some people who believe that it's going to happen mid, so three and a half years into the tribulation. Um, the Antichrist is going to get his fatal wound. Um, the two witnesses are going to be killed. They're going to be caught up. And it's at that point that the believers are going to be raptured. And then you're left with three and a half years of like absolute total hell on earth judgments from God. This is usually where they put the last six, last seven um, bowls. Usually most people take this view, put the first two sets of seven judgments, seals and trumpets in the first three and a half years, and the last set of the bowls in the last. And then the last view is that the post-tribulation, the rapture happens at the very end. Obviously, I would deny the mid-tribulation rapture because I don't believe rapture shows up in the Bible. And I guess you could technically call me a post-rapture because I do believe in the whole idea that the believers are going to be raised from the dead, they're going to meet Christ in the air, and they're going to come back to down to earth. Um, Now, on the post-trib, they're the vast minority. Very few people take that view. I don't know. I would have to plead ignorance on how many of them believe you're going all the way up to heaven, and then a few months later or something, you come back down to earth, or that it is truly um, the idea of uh, meeting the dignitary and ushering him in. Um, I will not use the word rapture personally because it does not appear in the Bible. And I think it can be very confusing to people what I mean. But I, would, I very adamantly believe, um, based on the culture, how Paul is using it, and even what we see in chapter 20, that that's exactly what we're going to see in chapter 20 is that the believers are raised from the dead. And we don't see them going up into the air in Revelation. We see Christ coming down. Um, but Paul would tell us that's what happened. They went up in the air. They met Christ halfway. And I don't mean 50% exactly. I mean that relatively speaking. And, um, and then they usher him back in the city. But yes, I would take that view. I would not use the word rapture, but I would take that view. Um, I think the reason that Revelation is not focusing on that is I think the revelations try to really emphasize Christ coming back and taking the throne. When we're in Exodus, we see Moses on Mount Sinai, and he's face-to-face, metaphorically, relatively speaking, with God. 
and he receives the law. But when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses tells us that he was surrounded by myriads of angels. Thousands upon thousands of angels were between him and God. Then when we get to Galatians, Acts, where Stephen tells us that the law was given through thousands and thousands of angels. And then when we get to Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells us that the law was given through angels. That's why the law is inferior to the new covenant, because the new covenant was given to us through Christ, but the Mosaic covenant was given through angels. So obviously when we're at Exodus, Exodus is not telling us about the angels because it's trying to emphasize the intimate relationship that God has with Moses. Where in Deuteronomy, Moses is trying to emphasize the distance that Israel has from God because of their sin. And so is Paul in Galatians and so forth. Likewise, I think Paul is emphasizing we're going to meet him. Like he's coming back. And he's our king, and we're going to go out and meet him. And even the dead are going to go, and you are going to see Christ coming. That's the context. Or I think the context of Revelation is Christ is coming back and taking the throne, and you are going to inherit the earth, and the, 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 the evil are going to be judged. And so I think that's probably the only reason that that taken up in the air is not mentioned in Revelation. But once again, if, there, if this was a full-blown rapture doctrine— I would expect to see it in Revelation. Once again, I know I just dropped a theological bomb on you, but process it, chew on it, go back through the document, read the verses in their context. If you want to challenge me and go on the internet and find all the other passages that people talk about, um, there aren't any, but you can. But do it. I'm not saying there aren't any, so don't you dare try. That's going to be a waste. I'm saying do it. Find out whether I'm right or not. View other people. There are gobs and gobs and gobs of YouTube videos on why the rapture is real and why it's not real.